A couple of years ago, I found out about a watchmaking workshop being held here at my good friend and previous Standard Age podcast guest, Tim Jackson's store. Because the class was so great, I thought I'd explore the company a bit further, and in doing so, one thing led to another, and the following conversation ended up being among the results. Today's guest is Nick Manousis, who was recently named Executive Director of the Horological Society of New York. Offering classes and workshops as well as an extensive library, HSNY has served as the go-to hub for everything from entry-level timekeeping knowledge to learning to actually being able to assemble a watch by way of their on-site and traveling workshops. We talk about him growing up in the surf and skate community of Santa Cruz, California, his early days hacking into telephone systems, his contributions to Hodinkee, and of course his time at HSNY and all the great work they're doing for us watch lovers and horological history buffs. Whether you're into watches or not, you should definitely visit HSNY's museum-like office space and certainly check out their lecture series. My conversation with Nick serves anyone who can identify with having a penchant for anything technical, so I hope you enjoy it. Due to COVID-19, the following is strangely the second consecutive episode featuring a disclaimer. Several events mentioned in this interview, including HSNY's gala, as well as all their classes, have been canceled. Their executive director actually retired since our meetup in New York, which is why Nick has filled those shoes. Nick has also informed me that after their usual summer break, HSNY will start its lecture series again in September, but they will all be online for the foreseeable future. Anyway, let's get to the show. I'm your host, Wesley Smith, and you're listening to the Standard Age Podcast. Mr. Nick Manousis, thanks for uh, joining the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we, as you know, as, as a listener, and thank you for listening, we kind of kick these things off with kind of where people grew up. Uh, are you from New York? No. Where are you from? I'm from the San Francisco Bay Area. Oh, what, what neighborhood? Uh, specifically Santa Cruz. Okay. Uh, and then I can get even more specific than that. Please. Uh, Aptos, California. Okay. Yeah. I generally just start with San Francisco and then kind of narrow my way down from there if, uh, if people are familiar with, with the area. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So what kind of town was that? Uh, it was a... California beach town. It is a California beach town. Mm -hmm. uh, small, sleepy. Uh, Santa Cruz was just uh, 10 to 15 minutes north on Highway 1. And it's, that was kind of uh, where everyone did their thing, you know, skateboarding and surfing and tourism. It's, uh, you know, it's a beach town. Did you grow up surfing at all? Not surfing, uh, but skateboarding quite a bit. Nice. Yeah, I, I think I broke my arm skateboarding once and, uh, you know, got really into it for a while. It's one of those things that it's just, uh, skateboarding and Santa, Santa Cruz are kind of synonymous. Uh, right. I think there's even, there's Santa Cruz skateboards, which is a pretty famous, uh, skateboard brand. Yes, absolutely. Uh, but I, for some reason I never got into surfing. Okay. Uh, well, it's cold water over there. It's very cold. Yeah. yeah. It's not like San Diego or Los Angeles and it's, I mean, you need a full body wetsuit um, and I never was a great swimmer and it was one of these things where it's in Santa Cruz, it's surfing is taken really seriously. Sure. And it's, 
not, it, you don't really just casually get into it for fun. It's either you just go all out and. Right. Uh, well, cause it is such a commitment, especially with the cold water. Yeah. What did your parents do? Uh, so my dad was originally a, a newspaper man, uh, working, like delivering, uh, no editing, editing. editing okay. Yeah. So he, uh, he originally worked at the Los Angeles times as an editor there. Uh, and then, uh, he was just always really into journalism. That was just kind of uh, his thing. That's really what he what he loved. Mm-hmm. And uh, after his time at at the uh, at the Los Angeles Times, uh, uh, we we moved up to Northern California, and he started a, a small local newspaper in in Aptos, uh, and then eventually got into the tech industry. Okay, just because it's. As you do in the uh, Bay Area, as you, as you definitely do in, in the in the Bay Area, and uh, worked in the tech industry for for a while, influenced me quite a bit. Got me into the tech industry as well. Uh, just one of those things, like you're alluding to in in Santa Cruz, you uh, skateboard, you surf, and you probably are in the tech industry in some sense. Right, right. And did your mom work, or was she staying at home? Uh, she 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 worked sometimes uh, stayed at home sometimes uh, she also she worked uh, as an administ- as an administrator for uh, some public schools Santa okay. Cruz High School cool yeah nice so then as you're coming up through school where'd you end up going to university I I applied to schools everywhere I, you know I had this big list and I was thinking oh I'm I'm gonna try to to get into Stanford or Berkeley and um, but I ended up going to UC Santa Cruz, University oh, okay. of California, Santa Cruz. Kept it local? Uh, kept it local. I mean, it wasn't by choice. I was really hoping to move over the hill. Uh, there's this, it's, it's called in, in what's it, I guess the Santa Cruz mountains. And we just, all the locals would refer to it as the hill. Sure. In Highway 17, you go over the hill from Santa Cruz to San Jose and it was always my thought, okay, I, I want to get out, uh, get out, get over the hill to, to go to college. Uh, but I didn't get into Stanford or Berkeley. I got into UC Santa Cruz. Uh, but it was a blessing in disguise. Uh, UC Santa Cruz is, it's one of the, I think, one of the most beautiful uh, college campuses in the world. It's an incredibly inspiring place to be. And I studied uh, computer science there and you know just had the whole college experience and that was the influence from dad yes studying computer science yes yes definitely yeah so were you coding and all the rest of that stuff yep yep. so you like things somewhat on a granular level then (laughs) yeah i i like to say i have an engineering mindset sure um i think about big tough problems all the time and it brings me some joy to get close to, to solving them, to, to working them out um, from an engineering perspective. Uh, so I, I enjoyed computer science. Uh, Were you always that way as a kid too? Were you into Legos and kind of constructing things or figuring out problems or were you yes, very definitely. much in the mathematical aptitude, you know? Well, when, when I was growing up, it was it was really at the time when uh, we started hearing all about these 
uh, hackers, you know, taking over phone lines and hacking computer systems. And that was a big influence on me when I was a teenager. Okay. Uh, so one of my fondest uh, high school memories was breaking into those phone boxes on the side of the street and tapping into people's phone lines. And No kidding. Uh, my, my, uh, my friend and I were, uh, we were, it was totally stupid, totally illegal, but it was just kind of the uh, crazy fun thing that we were doing. And we thought, oh, we're hackers. We're going to try and uh, just do stupid stuff. Sure. Uh, that was, that was, I guess, the the way I started with all of this uh, um, computer science and engineering. And then I got into it from a professional perspective. And you know, in, in the Bay Area, it's just kind of what you do. It's now more than ever, it's kind of difficult to do anything but right. uh, be in the tech industry and, and live in the Bay Area. Sure. So what were your first jobs out of college? Um, out of college, I worked for a company called Lightsurf Technologies, and they had this crazy idea. It was because really at the time, everyone thought that it was a that it was nonsense. It would never work. They had the idea to put a camera into a cell phone. <laughs> Somebody thought that wouldn't yes. work. Well, I mean, back back then, a cell phone. It was like a Nokia with a, you know like a black and white tiny little uh, display screen that just showed numbers yeah. and you can and then we finally got to the uh, what was it the StarTac like the flip phone it had a little bit bigger display and some of the newer phones were coming out with bigger bigger displays and finally we got to a couple color displays on cell phones and this was a big deal right uh, but they the, the the founder of Lightsurf had this idea back when cell phones were really still at a very early stage, that eventually we would be able to take photos with our phones and transmit them and send them all over the world. And today we just totally take it for granted. It's just a normal thing. Um, but back then it was a big deal. It was kind of revolutionary. Yeah, I mean, I think it's pretty abundantly clear that the phone aspect to our phones is probably one of the least used functions of our phones is mm -hmm. actually making phone calls. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny, especially in the Instagram age. It's really just a camera uh, these days. Yeah. So then what did you do after that? Uh, so after Lightsurf, uh, I, what did I do? Well, Lightsurf was based in Santa Cruz. So I went to UC Santa Cruz uh, and you remember my entire goal was to get over the hill to get to San Jose, get to San Francisco, get to the big city, right? right. Uh, so light surf was based in Santa Cruz and I was like, okay, well, it's a good job. It's, it's exciting. It pays well, but it's still in Santa Cruz. Right. So I stayed there and eventually light surf was, uh, was acquired. It was acquired by, um, What's this company? Verisign, an internet security company. Oh, sure. Yeah. They do domain names. Yep. And, uh, and they're in San Jose. So, so they were acquired by Verisign and we started uh, commuting and doing some work at their San Jose office. And then that was kind of the impetus for me to uh, think, okay, well, maybe it's time to look for a, another job, another opportunity. Maybe now I can make the move to San Francisco, which was the big city. That was where I really wanted to be. Absolutely. Uh, and I, I found a job at a new uh, startup in San Francisco and made the move up to the city and just kind of did the startup circuit for a while, you know, worked at lots of startups. Uh, in what capacity? As a coder or like as a... As a coder, yeah. yeah. As an engineer, really working um, 
I think the, the term it's still used is a full stack engineer. So I would do everything from the website, from the, you know, the UI, how things look and feel all the way back to the database. Sure. Um, so I worked uh, at a couple different companies in, in San Francisco. Uh, one was um, slide.com. They were, I mean, it's these, one of these totally forgotten startups, but they were really big when Facebook was just uh, getting into all of their customization uh, features. Uh, so they, it was slide because they allowed you to put a slideshow into your Facebook. Oh, I see. And this was a big deal back then, right? Yeah. Um, what else? I worked for a company that made ringtones. You remember when ringtones yeah, were a thing? That were such a thing, yeah. yeah. And you, you would could actually buy them pay and, money yeah, for a yeah. ringtone, right? <laughs> Uh, and now, I mean, we just keep our phone on silent and just kind of, just kind of go with it. But it was just the San Francisco startup tech experience. I, I learned a lot. I had a lot of fun doing it. Um, some companies were, were successful. They were acquired. Some went bankrupt and were not, but it was just kind of a wild ride going from one, one company to the next. Sure. So we're obviously in the horological society of New York offices right now what brought you to new york uh so uh, new york uh, my wife and i moved here because uh, she wanted to, to go to school oh okay uh, so we were living in san francisco and uh, she knew that i was getting burnt out from the tech industry and we talked about about it a lot and she said well you know you you really like watches you love watches why don't you think about uh, making a big change and getting into watchmaking. And I said, all right. And we ended up moving to Miami, Florida, where I went to watchmaking school. Yeah, sure. And so she moved uh, with me to Miami and kind of just uprooted our lives. And then after watchmaking school, she said, well, now I want to go back to school and get my master's degree. Um, and so I said, okay, well, now it's my turn. I'm going to move where you want to want to go. Right. And it just so happens to be that New York is a um, it's a great place for watchmaking. Sure. It's it's what's well, here in Miami, right? Isn't there a New York school as well? Uh, there is a, a New York school, the Patek Philippe School. Yeah. Uh, is here in New York. Uh, there's a few others around the country, uh, but New York really has all of the aspects of watchmaking here in one place, the entire industry in one place. Right, exactly. Uh, and it's kind of rare in that, in that sense. Uh, there are you know, other cities, I can think of San Francisco, for example. It has a great, uh, you, can, you can go to Union Square and see all the fancy boutiques. I was going to say the aficionados are there, but soup to nuts, you know, the kind of uh, yeah. the vertical integration of the industry isn't there. It's not there. Right. But it is here in New York. Right. And it's kind of the last place where it, the complete vertical integration happens. Yeah. Um, it's here in New York. So it's a good, it's a good place to be um, for me for watchmaking. And it's also a good place to be for my wife. She's in public health. Um, so it's, uh, you know, we both, we both enjoy it. We both like it. And sure. it's just, there's, it, it, life is never boring in New York. And is she into watches as well? Uh, not so much. Yeah, she my appreciates wife is them. not yeah. into it at all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And she, uh, every now and then she'll come to a lecture. She comes to the gala every, every year. Nice. Uh, but she's you know, not, not the same, uh, obsessive level that, that I'm, I'm at. But she obviously spotted it in you to encourage you to go to watchmaking school. Yeah. So it, when did you kind of, I don't know, 
find out that you were really into watches, for example? I can remember the exact night. Uh, I went to this, it was a, a party for Watch Time magazine. They were having this traveling uh, dinner expo thing called Watch Time, uh, what was it, Inside Basel, Geneva, sponsored by Watch Time. And they had all these watchmakers there exhibiting what they were working on. And I went to one just on a whim. Uh, my wife and I both went. And it was kind of the first time that I realized there was such a thing as an independent watchmaker. Mm. Before that, I just thought we have Timex, Timex, Rolex, <laughs> Rolex Omega, yeah. and that's it. You know, there's nothing else. Um, but then I realized, well, wait, there are these small independent watchmakers that are doing their own thing, doing it, doing things a, a little bit differently. Uh, and I, I met one of them at this show. I met uh, Peter Speak Marin. Oh, sure. And he encouraged me. He said, think about going to watchmaking school. They're all free. And I thought, wait, hold on a second. School, watchmaking school is free? Like, how can this possibly be? Right. Um, and I, you know, after that night, I was just kind of researching it and thinking about it and talking with my wife about it. Um, and she, you know, she said, well, this is, this looks like something you would be into. Why don't you really think about making a change and going to school? And I ended up, ended up doing it. So the school in Miami is free. Totally free. Uh, almost all watchmaking schools on the planet are free. Uh, it's a really similar situation to software engineering, the tech industry. There's a, an extreme shortage of watchmakers. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so more and more people today like to wear mechanical watches. Like, you know, you're wearing uh, your watch, I'm wearing my watch. Uh, it's just something that, that people think about quite a bit more today. We're collecting watches. Uh, more and more watches are being sold. But fewer and fewer watchmakers are graduating uh, from school and are able to uh, work on your watch, repair the watch. Uh, and so that's uh, that's kind of the main reason why schools are free. We need to encourage a lot more people to think about watchmaking as a viable career. Right. Yeah. Not creating a barrier to entry yes. is paramount. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's really cool. I had no idea it was free, but I mean, obviously you got to pay for everything else surrounding it. So, you know, yes. lodging and such, which is difficult. Yes. Yeah. Right. So that's the expense. Then that is definitely expense. And a lot of these schools also are not accredited schools. So you can't get an official student loan. You have to get a like grant money like a, or something, a scholarship or a grant, yeah. or you have to have a rich uncle or you have to be married and have your, uh, your partner support you while you're going to school because it's really intense. There's almost no way to have a part-time job while you're completing a, a full-time watchmaking certification. Sure. Um, and that's a two year education, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. yeah like um, two years. How did you like Miami? Um, it's, it's Santa Cruz and Miami are quite different. It's, uh, well, as is San Francisco and Miami. <laughs> I, I love Miami and I got to be careful with what I'm saying because Carolina sitting behind us, uh, grew up in Miami. Oh, lived, no way. That's so funny. Yes. Um, well, I, I was, well, actually, and there's a lot of watch events down in Miami as well. There are, there are, so, there are. Yeah. Uh, and I was actually just tread, in Miami. Tread lightly. <laughs> yes. 
I was in Miami this weekend for a, a, a wedding. Uh, I, I love Miami. It's a wonderful place. It's so different than New York. It's so different than anywhere in California, but it's not somewhere that I, I want to live all, all the time. It's a great place for me to go uh, for vacation. I love to go there for a vacation. It's a quick, easy flight from New York. Um, but uh, I, I didn't particularly enjoy living there right. full time. That's uh, understandable. If I'm, I'm just anti-humidity. That's why I left North Carolina. <laughs> yeah, I mean the summers can be a little bit brutal. You, you know, come the weekend you're thinking about, okay, uh, what, uh, what mall can I go to this weekend, or what movie theater am I going to go to? Because it's just you can't really do anything outside. Unless you just you're going to be totally drenched in, in sweat. So then you guys moved from Miami to New York for your wife's master's. Yep. And then you got a job doing what? Um, I. And when, when, how long ago was that? Uh, this was in 2014. Okay, so fairly recently. Fairly recently, six yes. Six years ago. Yeah. Uh, I got a job um, working at uh, at Hodinkee. Oh no way! Yep. I didn't yeah. know you worked there. Yeah. Oh, cool. Uh, so it was back when Hodinkee was still rather small. And it was just me, Ben, uh, Ashley, and Will. Okay. Uh, so this is when Stephen was away. When he went to, yes, with the Surface Magazine and then yeah. came back. I just started when he had just left. Uh, and so I, it was it was really at a transitional time for, for Hodinkee. And I think it's safe to say now that that transition went very well. Uh, so things uh, things have definitely picked up, and they're going in a really positive direction. Uh, but I was the, and I still am, the technical editor, uh, where I would, would write articles really with a, a focus on the more technical aspects of watchmaking. Got it. Uh, and this is something that I, I really think is a strength of Hodinkee, that if you look across that entire editorial team, you have people that are, experts on their specific section of, of watches or clocks or horology. Sure. Um, or Joe Thompson, who's just the end all be all to the business all, aspect. Yeah. everything. Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, like Ben is a walking encyclopedia on Rolex reference numbers. Uh, and then personally, I know nothing about Rolex reference numbers and it's just not really my cup of tea, but I can explain to you all the physics about how, uh, how a hairspring and a balance wheel works. Sure. That That's really what, what I enjoy. Uh, so that was uh, that was a lot of fun. I, I spent a lot of time there, um, and yeah, today's we're looking at the Hodinkee magazine sitting on the coffee table in front of us, and yeah, they're sure. they're they're really they're really just blowing up right now. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so what was what was your first watch as you kind of learned through that watch time event? Uh, first watch. Was what, what, do you remember what you were wearing that night? Probably my uh, Tag Heuer Carrera. Oh wow, that's that's a good start. It's yeah, provided it was that of, was your start. <laughs> yeah, it was. I think it was. It was my first real mechanical watch. Uh, it was. I think I got it at a, a Torno in San Jose, and I just really liked that it had a, uh, a sapphire display back, so I can see the mechanism. Right. And I just I would stare at that mechanism, even though it's a fair, it was a fairly. Uh, simple, no frills uh, movements. I just would look at it and think, well, what, I want to learn everything about what makes this watch tick. Sure. Uh, and that's that's kind of that was the start. That was the start of the of all of it. So then, when do you leave Hodinkee from a full time perspective? Uh, I left Hodinkee 
from a full-time perspective in 2016. Um, yeah, I started a company called Firehouse Horology. Okay. With a, a friend of mine, another uh, um, uh, watch industry person uh, here in, in New York. Uh, very good friend. His name is Kieran. And uh, Firehouse Horology... Uh, you know, we were talking about vertical integration in watchmaking in New York from top to bottom. Right. The one thing that was really lacking in New York was actual manufacturing of watch parts here. Sure. Uh, so not entire watches, but just certain parts for watches. So Firehouse Horology focused on the manufacturing of hairsprings for watches. Uh, so I spent a few years really doing that full-time, every single day working uh, at Columbia University in their nanofabrication facility. So wearing a full bunny suit, going into the clean room, processing silicon wafers. Um, yeah, that was that was my, my full time wow. uh, for, for a few years. Uh, it was firehouses. It's one of these things where um, I, I think I'm okay with this because I grew up in San, San, in the San Francisco Bay Area. And there's this culture of accepting failure and being okay with it. Sure. And learning from it and growing from it. Failing upward. Failing upwards, yes. Yeah. Uh, so Firehouse Horology failed. Uh, it, it did not work out. Uh, we were able to manufacture a product uh, that worked perfectly. We had it tested by a, a third party, an independent third party, uh, FP Jorn. Um, and we, were, we had this product, a hairspring that was ready to, to sell. Uh, to anyone, but we had never really th considered the difficulty in selling in selling this product. We that just was thought, my next question: Is who were you selling to? <laughs> yes, yeah. we were trying to sell to anyone and everyone, uh, anyone who needed a, a hairspring for their watch. Uh, but selling hairsprings is very difficult to do. It's it's not. Uh, I don't think it would. It's, it's as easy as maybe selling a case for a watch or a dial for a watch. Right. Uh, they're very difficult to install. Uh, you. You need a, a watchmaker that has a, an even higher level of training to be able to install a silicon hairspring and vibrate it to a balance wheel. Uh, and then from a financial perspective, silicon hairsprings don't really make sense in small quantities. Right. So you need to produce massive quantities of them. And So that must mean they're fairly expensive to produce, all yes. things considered. Yeah. What does a hairspring production look like? Like to, if you were to work on one sample, for example, uh, on one sample here. Well, just to give you an idea, even to, even to set foot in the lab and to work in the lab, right. Costs us both about $10,000 a month just to be in the laboratory No way. because it's, it's, uh, the, the amount of equipment they have in there, the full-time staff, the toxic gases, it's a serious operation. These clean rooms are, they're interesting in the sense that. It's not the type of facility that you'd see any startup building themselves. Right. You really only see these nanofabrication research and development facilities at Samsung, Intel, Apple, Google. Big wigs. Or big universities. Right. That's yep. it. Because they're just crazy expensive to, to run. Too many resources necessary. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So then after that, you make the jump over to where? to the horological society so that's but, where we arrive yes but okay. it was actually happening the entire time in the background when i moved to new york back in 2014 
Uh, one of the first things I did was meet up with one of my old uh, classmates from Miami. Uh, we uh, were hang, hanging out one day and he said, hey, you know, we have this meeting coming up for the Horological Society. It's a, you know, it's a small group of watchmakers and we just hang out and talk about watchmaking and you might enjoy it. You should come and, and check it out. Yeah, this was you know, back in 2014. So I did and it was a very small group, uh, 10 people at most. Sure. And it was a very different situation than where where we're at today um the uh, the horological society was was kind of on its last legs okay we, we can put it that way it wasn't doing well uh, the members were were dwindling uh, there were really almost no new members joining um, but it had it had this one quality to it this one aspect to it that uh, couldn't be made up or or altered or uh, changed in any way. It had real history. Are you a watch collector but having trouble finding something cool and unique? I mean, the last thing you really want is what everyone else has, right? Well, this is where my friend and former Standard Age podcast guest Tim Jackson comes in. He and his wife Jana own Passion Fine Jewelry in Solana Beach, California, where you'll find an incredible assortment of independent watches waiting for you in their shop and online. And if you're getting engaged, have an anniversary coming up, or simply have another reason to buy jewelry, they have you covered. Passion Fine Jewelry also employs a goldsmith on staff for any custom desires, so you're able to go that route if you so choose. Visit Passion Fine Jewelry when you find yourself in Southern California, but they're also open 24 hours a day at passionfinejewelry.com. You can also find a wealth of information through Tim's blog, independentintime.com, where he covers anything independent watchmaking related, uh, among a plethora of other information. So check that out as well. I've really enjoyed creating these podcasts on behalf of Standard H and sharing each of these personal stories with all of you. We each have goals, and it's the entrepreneurial spirit that inspired me to start the company. You can further support the brand and the podcast by visiting standard-h.com to pick up your choice of merchandise. And as always, thank you for listening. Lastly, if you have a moment, please rate and review the show. It makes a tremendous difference in keeping these things going. Now back to my conversation with Nick. If it's okay, can you kind of rewind and maybe educate folks on how this society started? Yeah, definitely. Um, so the, the Horological Society of New York was founded in 1866. Um, and it's kind of, you kind of need to think about where New York was in 1866. This is before the Empire State Building. This is before the Brooklyn Bridge. This is, bef- this is really when New York was just all downtown. There really wasn't much of a midtown or uptown. Yeah. Um, and if you were a watchmaker in New York City back then, you were most likely German. And, uh, so the, the, uh, the society back then, it actually was a German speaking society and all of the meetings were conducted in German. Everything was German. It was just how it was done. Yeah. Uh, and it was a professional organization. It was what's, what was called a guild, which is kind of an old fashioned word for a union. And so it was a professional organization for watchmakers in New York to help each other out. Uh, if, you had a particularly tough problem, a technical issue with a, with a watch. Uh, you can come to a meeting and, and find help. Uh, you can find, uh, it was 
from the union side, it's like a, you can get health benefits, death benefits, uh, the whole nine yards. And it was, uh, so it, it, the, the society grew and grew, and uh, by 1916, it was the 50th anniversary. Uh, the, the, uh, Which is still pre-Empire State Building. <laughs> yes, yes, a long time ago. That's crazy. In, in 1916, they decided to change to be an English-speaking uh, organization. It was around the time of World War One, and there was a lot of anti-German sentiment in the city. Right. And it wasn't necessarily just all German watchmakers here anymore, so we changed to be a, an English-speaking organization. Mm-hmm. Um, so then fast forward to the post-war period, uh, post-World War Two, and that's when uh, HSNY, as we like to call it, the acronym, that's really when it was at its peak. And this was just a professional organization. There were no collectors, no enthusiasts. It was just working watchmakers. Back then, we were having lectures or monthly meetings uh, with with uh, crowds over 500 people. Wow. So we kind of don't think about this today uh, because the, the Swiss industry has done a great job at marketing. And whenever you think about a mechanical watch, you, just, you think about a Swiss watch, which is... Fair. It's, it's fair. I mean, they've yeah. done a great job with it, but the American industry back then was huge, absolutely huge. Because we had Hamilton, Hamilton, Elgin, Bolova. Yep. Um, yeah, it was it was it was big. Uh, so that was kind of the the heyday of the Horological Society of New York. Um, and then we could fast forward even more. We can fast forward to the to the quartz crisis. So we know what happened in the quartz crisis. Uh, uh, the quartz watch was invented. It kind of made the mechanical watch obsolete overnight. It decimated the worldwide watchmaking industry. The American watchmaking industry pretty much completely shut down. Uh, But the one thing that did not shut down was HSNY. We kept going. Uh, Even though membership was dwindling quite a bit, uh, we just got, we got down to maybe 10 members left and um, maybe a thousand dollars in the bank account, and that was it. Wow! Um, but today, mechanical watches are very popular. We're seeing a resurgence in interest uh, in them, especially from young people. And with that, the Horological Society of New York is also seeing a, a massive resurgence. There's just a huge amount of interest in all of the educational programs that that we're putting on. It's it's kind of like a, a rocket ship blasting off and we're just holding on and, and trying to steer it in the right direction. Right, right. So what are some of those uh, type of educational approaches that you guys take? So the, 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 big, the biggest thing that we do is our lecture series. So we took you, I took you downstairs to see the library. It's kind of this really fun, uh, old-fashioned New York library. It's a New York interior landmark. Uh, every month we have a lecture there. The place is packed. Uh, we have people that come in from around the world that are an expert in some aspect of horology, and they give a lecture. So uh, most recently you had? Uh, this last month was, uh, no, Mar- March 2nd was Francois-Paul Journe. Um, and that was, that was a really a fun night, very well attended. Uh, he lectured on the phenomenon of resonance. Um, the lectures are, are, are more of an academic feel. So it's not the normal thing that you may get at a watch industry cocktail party. We're lucky in New York that we have 
a fairly active, uh, I guess you can call it a cocktail party scene. You can go to a watch cocktail party every week in New York if you wanted to. Well, Red Bar Crew is uh, Red Bar Crew, a standout yes. for sure with yes. the consumption of adult beverages with uh, watch talk. Definitely, <laughs> definitely. Uh, we're, we're very good friends with, with Red Bar, and I think that kind of... Uh, demonstrates how strong the watchmaking uh, uh, industry is is here in New York because if you want to uh, enjoy watches from a more party social aspect, you can go to Red Bar. If you want to enjoy watches and clocks and horology from a more academic, formal perspective, you come to the Horological Society. So we have a little bit of everything, which is which is really nice. We're yeah. lucky. We're lucky to be here. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk a little bit more about your role. What does that encompass exactly? And when did you come full? I mean, well, first of all, what is your role? Uh, so my, my role today is president of, of the Horological Society. So what does that look like? Uh, from a day-to-day perspective, I, uh, I'm thinking about really long-term uh, projects. Uh, it's it's really refreshing and different than working at a startup like I used to do in, in San Francisco where we're thinking very short term. We're thinking about next week, next month, right. uh, what are we going to do? Uh, to give you an example, at uh, one of our, at our board meeting, we, we were starting to think about 2066. Wow. Which is our 200th anniversary. Just kind of as a thought exercise, not really making concrete plans, but... 2066, that will be the 200th anniversary of HSNY. Where do we want to see the organization? And so this is a, a board meeting, and we're all sitting around having this discussion, and most of us probably won't even be around for the, uh, the, the 200th anniversary, but we're thinking in that direction because we know that, uh, that, we, uh, that we're going to get there, and we want to make sure that uh, the organization is... Uh, at its best possible trajectory to get there. Sure. We're just kind of taking care of it while we're here. So how do you define that success then? Is it number of members? Is it how many people are attending these workshops or? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, so metrics across the board, we see the attendance at our lectures. We see the, uh, the classes that we do both here in New York and around the world. Uh, we see members that are signing up. Uh, we're, we're a nonprofit, a 501c3. And we pay our rent. We keep the lights on here uh, because of our members, because of their generosity. Uh, we could not do what we do with without support from individual uh, members. It's 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 uh, extremely important to everything that that we do. Um, and it's I mean it's 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 new it's new for me thinking about this from the nonprofit perspective. Uh, but it's just thinking about all these different. Uh, um, aspects of the organization and making sure they're all as healthy as possible and that they all have a, a good um, uh, a good trajectory for the future. So you think long-term, big-picture type stuff. What, what in the short term are you focused on? What is sort of the growth strategy in the short term? Call it the next couple of years. Uh, short term is you know, working on the lecture schedule for downstairs. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I'm saying downstairs, it's, we're, we're up uh, at the HSNY offices right now on the fifth floor of the General Society building. 
uh, in Midtown Manhattan, and our lectures take place downstairs. So I'm scheduling the lectures for the next uh, two or three years, making sure that we always have a, a very diverse group of lecturers coming through. Uh, we're not the wristwatch society of New York; we're the horological society. So it's not just wristwatches; right. it's clocks, it's theories of time, it's uh, the phenomenon of resonance. All of these, all of these aspects that make up horology. Um, so really focusing on the lecture series, and then also uh, uh, continuing to develop the traveling education classes, which have just been crazy successful going all over the, the world with those um, we were just last month in um, in Australia uh, going to Canada next month it's just we're keeping it going nice are there any um, you're obviously technically minded right given that you went to watch school and you understand the functions and sort of the technologies behind these things what are there any independent watchmakers or even big ones that are standouts to you personally that you really enjoy or that you find that are doing really fantastic work? Oh, absolutely. Um, I've got to preface it by saying these are my personal opinions and not the, those, those of, of the, the, the horological yeah. society. <laughs> sure. Uh, Francois Paul Jorn is, is doing amazing things. He's a, a huge influence uh, for me personally. I've learned a lot from him. Uh, worked quite a bit with him uh, with Firehouse Horology working on Hair Springs. Uh, he's kind of a, a living legend uh, for watchmaking today. Uh, and then the living legend status, I think, could also be applied to uh, Roger Smith over on the Isle of Man. Sure. Uh, uh, he's a, a, a good friend of mine, and I'm, I'm always bouncing ideas off him. And he's, uh, he's, he's lectured here before, and he's uh, going to be back, uh, I think, next year to lecture again. Oh, nice. Uh, so we're looking forward to, to having him him back. Uh, those uh, those are uh, I mean the, the the two people that really come to mind right away. Uh, but there's newcomers too, and I think uh, Rajep Rajepi is is doing some amazing things as, as well. And uh, uh, I think there's a an, an incredible bright future there to to watch and to observe. Uh, independent watchmaking is is kind of it's kind of having a moment now. Uh, where maybe someone buys a watch, they start with a, with a, with a Rolex or an Omega, and then they uh, well, I can take it a step back. Maybe they start with an Apple Watch. Sure. And, These days, yeah, that's yeah, a good jump off Apple point. Yeah. Then you think, okay, well now I've, I I got a, a raise, I got a promotion, uh, I'm getting married, I want to maybe uh, get a, a little bit nicer watch that I can keep forever, and I don't need to necessarily upgrade every two years. So I'll, go, I'll get a Rolex or an Omega. Sure. And then beyond that, you start looking at independent watchmakers. And they're really taking the art and science very seriously. And taking mm -hmm. it, really taking it to, to the next level, taking it as far as they possibly can. Sure. You happen to be wearing a Nomos today. Yes. What about Nomos are you drawn to? Uh, the design aesthetic, the German design aesthetic. The uh, Bauhaus The Bauhaus style. Of, sure. Yeah. Well, they're pretty accurate too, so... Uh, they are yes yes they're they're very accurate uh, and it's also a, a small watch uh, I've got a lot of these big sport watches at home big chunky watches and uh, it bothers me when they don't fit under the under the shirt my, cuff. my shirt cuff so I, I, I sometimes I just prefer to wear 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 the Nomos. So what else is in the collection? Uh, I've got a my collection is, is I'm not I'm not much of a collector at all. I should just preface it by saying that really. Not, not at all. I'm not, uh, I'm not, 
not so much uh, in, into that. But I, the one thing that I do enjoy collecting quite a bit are American watches. Okay. American pocket watches mainly, railroad watches. Uh, pocket watches, I think, represent the biggest value in watchmaking today. Sure. Because you can find extraordinarily complicated pocket watches that are in very good shape. Maybe they just need a couple things fixed to get them running again. And they're just... And you can most likely do that work. Yeah. <laughs> so that yes. makes it even cheaper. Yeah. And they're just so incredibly cheap compared to anything that it would go on your wrist. Um, if for me personally, what I'm really looking for are the engineering uh, aspects of the watch, the mechanical engineering aspects. I look at the movement. Uh, I really don't care a whole lot about the name on the dial. Uh, so... To me, that's kind of that's perfect. That's what I go for. I, I get an, an old pocket watch, I pop it open, and I can just stare at that thing for hours, uh, admiring uh, this this mechanism that was built maybe over a hundred a hundred years ago. That's still running. That's still working. It's just this. Uh, I think a mechanical a mechanical timekeeper is one of the greatest inventions in the history of of the world it's uh, absolutely and today we can kind of take it for granted because we have our phones and our, our apple watches but keeping track of time was not uh, it was not a given a hundred years ago it was a luxury and uh, over centuries watchmakers and clockmakers uh, contributed to the development of a portable mechanical timekeeper that can really keep time to within uh, plus or minus five seconds a day. And that's really incredible to think about. Uh, yeah. You know, my thing is the perpetual calendar. Like I, it blows my mind. Yes. <laughs> did, uh, did, yeah, we just, we just had our, our leap year. Did you see any, uh, I saw on, on Instagram, a few people filming the, the jump. Right. Know? Yeah. Unfortunately I don't own one. Uh, and I was around no one at the time, uh, that owns one either. But, uh, yeah, I mean that complication just in and of itself is just, I, I just, the fact that somebody figured out how to do that in such yeah. a small case as well is just mind bending to me. Yeah. Um, is there any, are there any particular complications that you're drawn to? be it chronograph or otherwise? Uh, I am really honestly not drawn so much to complications. What I'm drawn to are escapements. Sure. Interesting. Escapements. Uh, in really specifically, the, the Swiss lover escapement is, is the most ubiquitous escapement in the world today, but it's really not too efficient. Mm -hmm. It needs lubrication. It has a lot of sliding friction. Parts wear out over time. So... What I am most interested in are alternative escapements. So that goes to the coaxial. Uh, it goes to um, the, 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 the tent es escapements. It goes to um, all of these new crazy silicon escapements that, that we're, we're seeing coming out. To me, that, that represents the ultimate in horological engineering. And so people understand what exactly does an escapement do? An escapement... I like to sum it up uh, uh, as, as describing it as a motion translator. Okay. Because we, you can look at a watch movement and you see the, uh, the, the, the gears and, and springs in the watch. And we can all kind of understand how a gear works, right? It's spinning and it's pushing another uh, gear with its teeth. Uh, 
but what's happening with those gears is they're, they're moving 360 degrees completely in a circle. Mm-hmm. And escapement takes that rotational motion and translates that motion into lateral impulses. So when you hold your wristwatch up to your ear, which I'm doing right now, and you can you hear the tick 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 tick. That's the escapement doing its job. That's that's it. It's it's taking that motion and, and changing it into impulses. Mm-hmm. And those impulses, they keep the balance wheel oscillating. Sure. And the balance wheel uh, is you think we think about it like the uh, you know it's very similar to a pendulum in a, in a, in a tall case clock it's the the regulating organ of of the timekeeper since you joined the society as a full-time employee what are you most proud of since you've you've been here as president uh well i should also i should preface i'm not a full-time employee oh i'm a full-time volunteer oh no kidding i'm not paid anything uh, for this wow Uh, so the uh you met our executive director uh, ed heidman he does an incredible job behind the scenes, keeping this entire organization running. Uh, when you get to a certain level running a nonprofit, you need to be audited every year and your tax returns are all public. So everyone knows exactly what's happening because uh, if we're going to be soliciting donations, uh, the public really needs to be uh, 100% sure of what we're doing with their money. And the public can be sure if if you anyone can go and look up our, our tax returns online and see exactly what what uh, what we're doing and where we're we're um, we're spending the money that is so uh, uh, generously donated to us. Um, but Ed is the executive director is essentially the CEO of the of a nonprofit. So Ed is the CEO. I'm the president. That means that I am the president of the board of trustees. Uh, and the trustees are kind of the final decision makers. Uh, we, you know, we have our board meetings. We vote on all these big ideas. Uh, and how many people are involved in that? About 10. We cool. Have about 10 trustees. And they're all New York-based. They're all uh, people that are in the industry in, in some sense. Um, and they, uh, we, have, we have meetings uh, usually once a quarter to discuss uh, the, the, big, the big picture ideas of what's happening with, with the Horological Society. Uh, I think you asked the thing that I'm most proud of uh, since we, uh, or since I, I guess, became uh, so involved with the society, and that's its its resurgence. Uh, when I when I first came to my first meeting, uh, there there really were just ten people there, and like I said, just just barely any money in the bank, and uh, it 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 wasn't just me. We've got this incredible team. Of, uh, of full-time employees, part-time employees, and volunteers, but the team has has really turned this this organization around. Uh, it's growing at such a rapid pace from every possible perspective, uh, and we're we're really extraordinarily excited about the gala that's coming up uh, next month, where we. Uh, give out a lot of money to young watch watchmakers in the form of scholarships. Uh, I think the the thing that I'm most I'm, I'm personally most happy about, most looking forward to, and I, this happens every year, is once our scholarship committee decides on which students are going to get the scholarships for this year, I usually give them a call. I just call them out of, out of the blue, 
and they're all over the country. You know, I've, I've never met, I usually have never, never met any of these, uh, these students. And they are like me 10 years ago, going to watchmaking school, making a lot of sacrifices in their life to, uh, pursue a passion. And it, it, uh, it is just such a fulfilling feeling to be able to, to call them and say, Hey, I just want to let you know that we are going to give you a check for $10,000. Yeah. That's amazing. And every year we, we are trying to expand that scholarship and do even more. And hopefully we'll be able to do that this year as well. That's got to feel like some version of winning the lottery for those folks. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a big deal. It's a really big deal for them. Uh, yeah. That's really cool. We just, we, we, you know, we were talking earlier about there's a shortage of watchmakers, just like there's a shortage of software engineers in Silicon Valley. We cannot afford uh, as an industry for a, a, a young watchmaker who has aspirations to go to school to, uh, to think, you know what, I can't do this because I can't afford it. Right. We can't, we can't let that happen. We really need to get to a point where anyone who wants to study watchmaking, who can do it, they should not need to worry about anything else but watch watchmaking when they're in school. That's great. And that's really the, the big idea. That's, that's our goal. Uh, we, we want to eventually be able to give scholarships to every student in the country. Right. That's uh, fantastic. I mean, I, I know speaking for myself, like I just, I feel better giving a gift than receiving. Yeah. I think kind of, we all do to some degree. So that's gotta, yeah, I could see why that would make you feel like a million bucks each, each year. <laughs> uh, it makes me feel like $10,000. <laughs> it's, it's a, it's a good feeling. I, I agree with you. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah, we just, we, we want to do, uh, the, the most amount of good possible. That's fantastic. Outside of horology, what are your passions? Uh, uh, outside of, of, of horology, you got to give me a second to like get out of my, my, my horology, horology, escape escapements here. and such. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, I, I'm a runner. I love running. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. We, are you a marathon guy or no, but it's funny you ask that we, it's a, uh, my, my wife and I, we just moved to, uh, the South Bronx. Okay. We bought our first apartment. And it's, uh, congratulations. Thank you. And it's, it's on 138th street, which is the marathon route, the New York marathon route. And, uh, every year the marathon comes right by our door and it's, it's the, it is such a fun day the, from early in the morning until the, until the evening, it's just nonstop. Yeah. And then when usually about like 10 AM, you see the elite runners coming through and they're just sprinting. And this is mile, we live at mile 20. And it's wow. just crazy to see them, see them run like the that pace. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, you have tens of thousands of uh, marathoners coming through. Um, so I, uh, I, I love running. It's, it's, uh, I, I run it every, every morning, uh, pretty much. And it's I, every year I think about the marathon and I think, Oh, should I, uh, I really want to do it. Uh, unfortunately my cardiologist is saying I probably shouldn't, shouldn't oh, really? do it. Um, because it's not the, it's some, sometimes it's a little bit too much, um, for, for some, some people. Sure. Yeah. But it's, 
it's it's an inspiring thing to to watch every year. So do you run typically through Central Park or what's your route? I used to. We used to live in Harlem and that was that was fun. I, we would uh, close en- we were close enough to Central Park North. We'd come down and uh, and run around the Harlem Mirror. Uh, but now in the South Bronx just uh in the South Bronx uh on a treadmill. Uh yeah, that's but run- running is is my thing. Nice. Yeah. Well, um I really appreciate you taking the time. This is a nonprofit, as you mentioned. So how could other folks not only just pay attention to what you're doing, but how could they maybe contribute as well? I think the easiest way uh, is to join as a member. So members get uh, certain privileges. uh, One of those privileges is early access to our classes and our, our, our lectures downstairs. Uh, we, we've kind of been having a, a good problem uh, lately that our lectures tend to sell out very quickly. Our classes sell out very quickly. Uh, so being a member, you, uh, you get early access to those. And you also get a nice uh, spiffy little lapel pin that you can wear and, and, dis- and, and wear it with pride and, and display it. Sure. Now, what do the classes cost and what do the lectures cost? Lectures are totally free, open to the public. Okay. Uh, classes are, we have two types of classes. Um, the classes here in New York are evening classes, two hours, and they're $200. And then we have our traveling education classes, which uh, are during the weekends. They're, they're uh, four-hour classes, either in the morning or afternoon, and they are $500. Uh, at the same time, uh, if you are a full-time student, a veteran, or you otherwise cannot afford the class fee, it's totally free. Oh, wow. So we always, you know, we often have a lot of people say, oh, do you have a, can you make a discount? Can I get a little bit cheaper? Uh, no, we don't do any type of discounts. But if you can't afford it, it's free. No questions asked. Our goal, our focus is to, is to teach the public as much about horology as possible. It's not to... Uh, charge as much money as we can for classes. It's really just uh, the bare minimum we can charge to uh, to cover our costs. Sure. Well, Nick, thank you so much for the time. Thank you, Wesley. I really appreciate you taking the time and uh, and sharing all that you've you've shared with us. Um, if there's anything else that you wanted to share or uh, promote, well, I just uh, I just want to encourage everyone to come out to to our gala. It's our our biggest uh, biggest fundraiser of the year. Uh, that's I don't know when you're going to be uh, 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 publishing this podcast, so maybe it already will be over, and you're all, you already will see uh, all of the the uh, photos and uh, articles and all of the students winning their scholarships. Uh, but every year, it's it's really what I, I most look forward to. Great. Yeah. Well, thanks very much once again. Thank you, Wesley. Okay. All right. Take care. I'd like to thank Nick one more time for the hospitality back in March. I sincerely appreciate you taking the time as well as for showing me around the offices and the library. It's truly, truly impressive. As always, I'd like to thank Clear Audio for the noise-canceling headphones, Jensen Reed and Super Beautiful for the theme track, and I will catch you guys again in two weeks' time. Bye, everyone. 